This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. And Libby Hartfeld is the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. The Rice's whale is a newly discovered species of whale in the Gulf of Mexico. So to talk about this new discovery and what it means for marine life in the Gulf, we're going to talk to Christian Wagner from Healthy Gulf. As the coastal organizer for Florida and Alabama, he'll talk about how these newly discovered whales will affect us and what to do to learn more about these animals. Also, Dr. Major is ready for pet questions, and Libby always likes to talk about your recent brushes with nature. Join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. If you ever miss Creature Comforts on Thursday morning, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So, Dr. Major, good morning. We're going to start off with a couple of uh, emails for you. Um, This first one says, uh, we have a four-month-old dachshund, Bella. She's a real treat, but she's very keen to gnawing on my fingers, sometimes scraping them. I see it as teething since she loves chewing on her toys and other things. Will this finger habit pass, or should we nip it in the bud? Great question, uh, and this is true with a lot of puppies. Uh, I would use what I would call a distraction technique, uh, offering her something else to chew on rather than your fingers. Uh, a lot of times we play you know, with the face and feet and everything and just uh it seems to get the the puppy started to wanting to chew but don't let her get too far advanced with this uh good firm no uh and push her away and give her something else to chew on or gnaw on Uh, there's there's a lot of different ways you can do this a lot of it has to do though with just being a puppy and, and teething I think you're right, though. I like the idea of the of the no, you know, don't do this, but then to immediately give them something else so they can begin to, you know, recognize, okay, well, I can chew on this thing, even though they're saying I can't chew on this thing. Right. And that, that is, it's a problem, but most of the puppies outgrow this and, and, and learn, hey, it's not a good thing to be chewing on my master's fingers. <laughs> Biting or, the hand that feeds me. That's or, or, to, or toes. Yeah. You know how that goes, yeah. Well, you know, and I had a similar thing with my cat where he used to, again, sort of ambush your feet as you walk down the hall. And again, that was more of a kitten thing. And he still is playful as an adult, but uh, doesn't seem to ambush me anymore. So again, maybe this is just youthful behavior on our pet's part. A lot of it is, yes. All right. So, Dr. Major, on this next one, I need your help pronouncing uh, what I think is a dog species, and that is M-A-L-I-N-O-I-S. That's good. That's a good. You know how to pronounce that. It's Melanois. Okay. <laughs> That's I'm one sorry. I've never heard of. <laughs> well, okay. Think think of uh, the uh, PD dogs that are drug dogs primarily. Okay. Uh, you can go online and look at these. These are very talented dogs, very athletic, uh, and they're quite useful as far as drug detection and uh, also from the standpoint of uh, bite work if it needs to be. So it's a Malinois, yes. Okay. Do we find them in Illinois, the state? <laughs> <laughs> no. 
find them more in uh, the Netherlands, the uh, some in some in Germany. They're pretty widespread, and they're very sought after uh, for police type work. All right. So this question says uh, some suggestions uh, about socializing a four-year-old neutered Malinois male who also suffers from separation anxiety. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a great question also. And, of course, one of the things is what what has the dog experienced in the past? With a dog like this, uh, they're quite capable of, uh, you know, if they're really pushed, they're quite capable of biting. And uh, they, until you know this dog, until you know how he's been treated in the past, I would suggest some uh, professional help with a dog like this. Uh, that separation anxiety thing probably tells me that this dog has been left alone uh, quite often. I don't know that that's true, but certainly uh, professional help, a dog trainer, somebody that knows the dog and able to assess after uh, meeting with the dog and with the owner uh, certainly would be a big help. But uh, it kind of gets in a situation where you can't tell an awful lot as far as what to do without actually seeing the dog. So in terms of looking for a trainer, I guess maybe the Internet is always a source, but also I guess if this guy went to his vet, uh, that uh, vets might be able to uh, recommend uh, trainers. In most cases, they could direct, uh, you know, direct uh, this owner uh, to a trainer. Uh, certainly if uh, they have problems finding a trainer, they could uh, email you back there, and I would I would try to assist or help with that. Okay, but also this seems like also uh, something with a little professional help that this might be something that that could be you know cleared up and and the situation alleviated. I would think so. Separation anxiety though is a very uh, uh, real thing, and some dogs will literally tear their kennel up trying to get out. Uh, others will. Uh, tear things up in the house. I mean, this is not just the Malinois. This is even dachshunds or small dogs as well. And uh, they they are, I guess they need to be occupied for one thing, but they have this strong bond with uh, their uh, human parents, if you will, and uh, they don't want to be left alone. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, is joining us as she does each Thursday. Good morning, Libby. Why don't you tell us some of the things you're seeing outside in your yard these days? Hey, Kevin. Uh, uh, definitely. Uh, one of the things I want to remind people to do is to put their hummingbird feeders out. Clean them up and hang them out. Make you remember, I, I do one cup of sugar to four cups of water. Stir it up in a quart jar, shake it up good. It doesn't have to be boiling water. And um, hang out your hummingbird feeders. I'm getting reports all around of friends with hummingbirds. And I haven't seen one yet, but mine is up now and clean, so I'm hoping that will work. And then um, another reminder is to clean up your um all of your bird feeders and um, water sources. If you've got a, a bird bath out there, be sure and clean it up. There is still some bird disease in the area, but uh, the 
the deal is you need to really clean those feeders well and you need to clean underneath them on the ground really well all the time so that you don't start the disease. If you do have the disease, of course, clean everything up and then it's probably best to stop feeding or it is best to stop feeding for a little while. And this goes back to one of those things that we've talked about for years. Much more important than putting out feeders for birds is using the right plants in your habitat that uh, give birds their more natural food, and that is native plants, and I can't stress that enough. I'm reading a a book uh, that's been pretty widely um, accepted, Nature's Nature's Best Hope by uh, Douglas um, Ptolemy, and it's a, a great approach to starting conservation in your own backyard. And the primary thing over and over, he says, is to use native plants. You know, let's avoid buying another crepe myrtle and instead get uh, American Beauty Berry, something that's going to have food for the plants, I mean, food for the animals that are in your yard, mostly the birds we're talking about. And um, it's it's the the best way to attract them, the healthiest way to feed them. And, of course, that extends to your hummingbirds. If you put nectar flowers out or grow things that have nectar flowers, then um, that's even better than the hummingbird feeders. And then one other monitoring the yard. I, In fact, Kevin, I identified with you yesterday. I had my second COVID shot Tuesday, and I had a, a day of not feeling so great <laughs> yesterday and a little fever, the whole thing. But I, I woke up a new person this morning. I highly recommend taking the vaccine. Uh, no problems other than just one little day that I laid around in the hammock a lot. But I did the, the monitoring of my yard that is – the most important thing we can do, I think, with monitoring your yard, um, what tears up your your fun in the yard more than anything? Mosquitoes for me. And if you'll go out and watch where the water sources are in your um, yard and get rid of those, that's, that's much more important than buying chemicals or using any strange little machines to zap the mosquitoes. Those things may work and I don't, I don't mind you using them at all, but the first thing is to walk around. If there's a toy laying there with um, water in it, you're going to find mosquito wigglers in them, the little larvae that are growing. So dump all that out, uh, a turned-over flower pot, the dishes that go under your flower pots, those are great places to grow them. And it can even be in a shed or right under the side of your house or under the eave of the house. And uh, I found several places around my my yard and on my walking trails that uh, I could see the little wigglers starting the mosquitoes. And every 24 hours, you can get a new batch of them. So mm-hmm. it, that's a, anyway, that's a really important thing to do. Uh, I try not to use chemicals. I think that any poison we use that can kill mosquitoes can also harm things that I want to see in my yard. So the very best thing for me to do is to try to get rid of those sources. You know, I've got a pond, and the um, pond doesn't produce mosquitoes because I've got plenty of fish in there, and the baby fish eat the little mosquito larva, that kind of thing. So the the water sources that are often 
the most productive for mosquitoes are those weird things that are just like a bucket in the yard. The sun warms it up, and they like the water warmer than air temperature usually anyway. So anyhow, that's my soapbox for the week is to get rid of those places where mosquitoes are breeding in your yard. And I'll bet if you go out and spend some time in your yard, you'll find at least one place where that's happening. And uh, then remember to keep your feeders clean so that we can enjoy our birds and keep them healthy. All right. Uh, before our first break, we have a bird feeding question on the line. So let's talk to John in Jackson. Good morning, John. You're on the air with us. Hey, good morning. Um, Libby, I've got a question on the cleaning the, the bird feeder. What do you recommend to clean it with? And when you mention cleaning underneath it, do you mean just uh, uh, getting all the old seed and stuff out of there? Yeah, okay, that's a good. Cleaning it with a... Um, a 10% bleach solution is what's recommended, and that can be a little bit hard on your plastic. But So you don't have to soak it in it long, but be, first scrub it with soap and water. Get all those little particles out of there. Some of our feeders, I have a couple of feeders that I can put through the um, dishwasher, and that helps a lot. But uh, follow that with a dip in a bucket of 10% bleach. And... Uh, then you can rinse it off or you can just let it air dry. But be sure you air dry it before you put the seed in there. You don't want them to get that chlorine into, you know, into their food. So don't put the seed in it until everything's dried out after that. And then underneath, I take a rake, rake it up, uh, spread any of, get any of that old seed up because, it, you know, if you can see if they've been under there, they've, if the birds have been on the ground under the feeders, there's going to be bird poop. And so be sure you clean all that up. You could bring in some fresh leaf litter from another part of your yard to put under there after you've raked it so that it doesn't, you know, look like bare ground under it. But anything like that that you can do and spreading the feeders out, you know, help the birds move into other parts of the yard that just keeps from keeps you from accumulating those um, areas where they might infect each other. All right, uh, John, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts, and it's time for our first break of the hour. When we get back, we'll talk about the newly discovered Rice's Whale from the organization Healthy Gulf. We'll talk with Christian Wagner. Also, Dr. Major and Libby are here for your creature questions and brushes with nature. Call with questions and comments. It's one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation with a question or comment, you can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Send an email to animals at uh, before we get to our guest this morning, uh, well, no, that call dropped off the line. So we can welcome to the show uh, Christian Wagley from Healthy Gulf. 
He's the coastal organizer for Florida and Alabama, where he works to protect water quality, create a healthy energy future, and improve coastal resilience in communities along the Florida Panhandle and southeast Alabama. Christian, thanks for being with us today. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to work with Healthy Gulf. Yeah, good morning. It's it's truly an honor to be to be with you all. Um, I've worked on environmental issues for about 25 years, um, mostly here along the the Gulf Coast, and um, I had done a lot of work in in uh, in government and also in the private sector, and saw the opportunity to work in the nonprofit world to really be able to advocate for more of the changes that needed to be made to. Uh, to help protect and preserve the Gulf of Mexico and all of the waterways in, in all five of the Gulf states. So it's been an exciting opportunity and really a lot of fun. So what made, motivates your personal interest in the Gulf and in general and this new whale species in particular? You know, I think that um, I'm certainly like most people. Humans are naturally curious, right? And that curiosity has served us well throughout our existence when we were so, especially when we were so much more um, connected to nature and our surroundings on a, on a daily basis. Um, it was in our best interest to know uh, about our surroundings so that we could find food and we could find water um, and, and all those things. And so there's a natural curiosity there, I think, that certainly drives me. Um, I also think that my set of values, and I think values that, that many of us hold, which are that uh, the, the many, this myriad of plants and animals that we've been given the gift of having on this planet, um, they, they deserve to exist. Um, our world is richer and better when they exist, and we need to find ways to to live among them. And then I think finally, the big thing is that I feel like if we can save the, this whale, the rice's whale, then we have a chance to save the Gulf of Mexico. A lot of times when we do environmental work and try to engage people, it, it, a lot of the issues can be harder to see, not as tangible. But in the case of a whale, um, and I'm sure this is a term you've probably used on the show, a charismatic megafauna, right? It's a big animal that's you know warm and fuzzy and, and attracts people to want to protect it. And so I think it gives us that opportunity to engage around the whale, knowing that if we can do the right things that, that help this whale to survive, um, then we're doing the right things for the Gulf of Mexico. And ultimately, we have a chance to improve it and, and ultimately save it. You know, as someone who enjoys going to northwest Florida to visit the beaches, I think that's true, too. If we protect uh, the creatures that are in the Gulf of Mexico, then it becomes uh, remains, you know, a a fun place for for humans to enjoy as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a it's a beautiful coast. And those whales are just they're just 60 miles or so offshore from where I am this morning. It's, It's amazing. They think they're out there. So we do have some news about the Rice's whale. Uh, if I, am I correct that these whales were at one time believed to be bride's whales? Yeah, interesting. That's kind of how it's spelled. It's actually pronounced Brutus okay. um, whales, uh, which are, uh, are found around the world. And there was a, a species of Brutus whale, or the, the, at least they thought a subspecies here in the Gulf of Mexico for many, many years. And this exciting, really exciting news that came out in January is that, yes, it's it's a new species now that we're calling the Rice's whale. Um, and this was an, a, a journal article, a scientific journal that was published in, in January, just two months ago. Um, the, the journal Marine Mammal Science, right? This is not a, a magazine that you would find uh, sitting in your in your dentist's office, you know, but uh, uh, the, the federal government, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration folks um, reported this in that in that uh, in that journal. And the media picked this up. And I mean, there were literally hundreds of articles ab- about this um, finding that this new species of whale and what, what allowed this this finding to occur was back in 2019, a, 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 a specimen of this whale stranded in South Florida off the Everglades. Strandings are when a, a whale or a dolphin, sea turtle, anything like that, comes ashore, either dead or alive. In this case, it was dead. 
but it provided an incredible opportunity because they preserved the skull from that whale and they were able to compare that skull to other uh, species of whales that were closely related. And by doing that, they were able to do the work that finally definitively said that this was truly a unique and distinct and separate species. Um, and that, that information was backed up by genetic data as well, uh, the information or the work they do around DNA and, and being able to study that. So um, together, and it took a few years to pull all that together, they published this paper that said this is absolutely a new species. And they named it after a man named Dale Rice, who was an early whale researcher and had about a 60-year career in marine mammal science. And he was the first researcher to recognize that this whale um, was present in, in the Gulf of Mexico. So what can you give us maybe an example of some of the things in the Rice's whale that they realized did separate it a whale from the, the Brutus whale? Yeah, there are some specific um, morphological features in the skull. I believe it has to do with some of the um, the ridges and the patterns of the ridges around the blowhole and such. Um, but it gets into some pretty specific stuff about the structure of the skull. I think that, that was where they – Focus. And of course, with the DNA, they were able to tell that it was a, a species that was distinct and how it had evolved from, say, um, Brutus whales and other whales out in, in, say, the Atlantic and other places. So as you told us, you, you know, work to pre uh, preserve the Gulf of Mexico and all the creatures that live in it. What are some of the problems that specifically whales face and, and how can some of the problems facing the whales be addressed? Yeah, this whale, the rice's whale, really uh, faces just a, a variety of, of problems. Um, one is being struck by vessels, um, ships and, and other vessels. Um, there's a lot of um, oil exploration in the Gulf of Mexico, so you have oil spills that occasionally happen. There's also entanglement in fishing gear where they can get caught in nets or long lines from fishing. There's also ocean debris such as, such as plastic. But really it's believed the biggest uh, uh, impact of all on the whales is the exploration for oil and gas and the drilling for oil and gas. It is a very, very messy and chaotic environment out there. There's drilling offshore of every state in the Gulf except for Florida. And there are thousands and thousands of, of oil and gas rigs and thousands of miles of pipelines and ships serving those. It's an extremely noisy environment. And so what the whale has done is interesting. Imagine if you went to a, a mid, middle of the 20th century industrial city in America that was full of noise, full of pollution, very chaotic environment. And you found a little park space that was full of shade and trees and flowing water, a little refuge, right? You would go there to take refuge because it was quiet and pleasant. And that's literally what the rice's whale have done is it has moved into and the only place it can live sort of a refugia in the eastern gulf of mexico off of florida that's the quietest part of the gulf of mexico now we believe they used to live along offshore of all the gulf states and 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 into south um gulf off of uh, mexico for example but they've literally taken refuge in this quiet area and the and the real height of their population is in a place called the DeSoto canyon which is about a three thousand foot deep canyon offshore of uh of Florida, like I said, probably about 60 miles or so from where I sit here this morning. And so that's where they are. Um, those are the threats that they're facing. And, um, you know, our organization is, is working to raise awareness around these threats. And one of the things that the Endangered Species Act, which, by the way, it's the law of the land in the United States that we protect endangered species. It's really an incredible that we've you know put our values into the law, actually. And so it allows us to petition the government and in some cases sue. And so we do that sometimes as the last resort. And we first sued to have the along with uh, the Natural Resources Defense Council, Healthy Gulf sued to have the whale listed as endangered. And now we sued last summer to get the federal government to go ahead and designate the critical habitat for the whale, which is a, a critical part of um, 
the process of recovering the way out. Sometimes the government moves too slowly and sometimes they need a, a nudge along. And so that's what we're trying to do with the with the lawsuit. And so with the, that habitat, is that then protection not only for the creatures, but the, the, the habitat that they live in? So would, would possibly limit what sort of maybe commercial activities could go on there? That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, I think the oil and gas industry has agreed to to not do any uh, exploring in that area for now. The seismic surveys that are so noisy and create such problems for, for whales. Uh, and that area remains off sh- uh, uh, off limits to drilling from various moratoriums for some number of years now. But the, the critical habitat designation, yeah, would, would literally draw a line around those most critical areas and would really limit things that might um, – that might uh, might harm the whales in, in in those areas, and really the noise being one of the primary uh, primary ones. You mentioned the oil and gas uh, industry and oil spills. I think all of us remember the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Um, are there still effects being felt by the whales and other creatures in the Gulf from from that spill? Well, there are now. First of all, the Deepwater Horizon disaster. It's estimated that it killed 22 percent of the remaining population of these whales, the rhesus whale, which, by the way, it's known for sure there's less – with certainty, there's less fewer than 100 remaining. So it makes it one of the most critically endangered animals in the entire world. And it's more likely that there are actually fewer than 50 is what the estimates say. So the Deepwater Horizon um, impacted them directly. But you also have millions and millions of gallons of oil that continue to remain on the on the ocean – or excuse me, Gulf bottom – um, that are that are creating these ecosystem level effects that may in some cases be limiting um, the whales access to food and causing these other types of um, impacts. And by the way, there are continue to be, you know, oil spills on a daily basis in the Gulf of Mexico from 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 oil drilling. Um, so that continues to be a, certainly a threat. But it's maybe even more so it's the it's the exploration, it's the noise, it's the seismic surveys, the booms that happen underwater as part of that that really, really do threaten the whales. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue talking with our guest for today, Christian Wagley, about the newly discovered rices, whales, and other coastal issues. Dr. Major's here ready for pet questions, so you can call in questions and comments. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Email animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. Kevin Farrell here on Creature Comforts with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest for this hour is Christian Wagley, coastal organizer for Healthy Gulf. If you miss any of today's show, you can always subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app on your smartphone, or you can download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone, and you can listen to all of the local Think Radio programs on your schedule. To join our conversation this morning, just give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. More discussion with our guest in just a minute, but we do have a couple of phone calls to get to. We'll start with a call from our friend John Davis in Jackson. John, good to hear from you. Go ahead. Oh, it's 
wonderful to know you were there. Hi, Libby. <laughs> Hello to all. I recall reading somewhere that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the deeper seas and their life. I'd like our guest to comment on two things. First of all, what kind of general research would you like to see done in the Gulf? And, uh, and secondly, what do you think of the aspirational 30-30 plan? That is, setting aside 30% of the earth and seas as protected areas by 2030. What are some of the areas you would like to see preserved in this fashion? wonderful, exhilarating stuff about discovering new species, wonderful way in which it jogs the desire to explore more. All right, uh, John, thanks for the call. So, Christian, uh, maybe if you would start with his question about the 30-30 plan. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, our organization is aware of that. We have not specifically taken a position on it yet, but we we do believe, and the science is very clear, that um, we need to preserve much, much more, and maybe 30% is a, is a very good target, more of our land and more of our waters uh, as places of refuge for, for these species. Even as we develop so much of the rest of the land and water for, for various human activities, it's been shown, for example, and there's a term used in, in, uh, in marine areas called marine protected areas, where they will designate an area that's very special and very much limit commercial activities in those areas. And what they've found is that um, the, actually the surrounding areas where um, fishing and other commercial activities may still be allowed, these, um, these marine protected areas end up being incredible nursery areas that really benefit the surrounding areas because the, the species of fish and other marine life have this one safe place where they can go to breed and to live um, freely without that interruption. And they end up um, really all the surrounding areas end up benefiting as well. So we will probably look to maybe take a position on that 30 percent plan at some point, but it certainly has merit and we need to protect, uh, protect and preserve much more of these large areas of ocean and, uh, and and land. In the Gulf of Mexico, there is a, a nice area called the Flower Garden Banks that a lot of people don't know about, but this area of kind of like seamounts that rise up from the floor of the Gulf um, off of the uh, off of the Texas coast. And there's coral on them and these incredible reefs, and they're just amazing. And that is one area that has been set aside for sure in the Gulf of Mexico where, where no exploration or, or heavy fishing activities or anything is allowed. So, uh, John's other question was about uh, future research in the Gulf. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I guess since we're talking about the whale, I think, um, I, you know, I would say that um, we would hope that additional research would be given on the the life history and the habit habits of the whale, of the rice's whale, as a way of helping to protect them. Um, and so I think there will continue to be a focus on that as with this endangered um, designation and this new species designation. Um, I, I would say Gulf wide that we actually one of the silver linings of the horrendous Deepwater Horizon disaster in 2010 was that a whole bunch of money has flowed to the Gulf of Mexico for research that never would have been funded prior. And there was always a dearth of research here. Um, much more research has been done off the Atlantic coast and the Pacific coast. The Gulf was always kind of a, a, a zone of, of more scarcity and research. So we actually have benefits. Um, and there's a lot more science coming in now that helps us better understand the Gulf and and and, and how to better protect and, and, and clean it up. Uh, back to the phone lines we go. Next, we're going to visit with our friend uh, Kathleen, who's called in from Osaka. Good morning, Kathleen. Good 
Good morning, guys. I, I'm very, very close to nature, and I live that way. Try not the chemicals or... I didn't even get air conditioning till this year. <laughs> so, and I've been here over 20 years. But what can we do if we don't live along the coast to stop the flow of contamination, pollution? Because it's like if it goes in the Gulf, water doesn't stay stable. So if it doesn't stay stable, stable it flows from one area to the other. And I've been heartbroken since that oil spill uh i i i actually thought i had ps within tv or whatever about that spill for years worrying about the gulf and it is such an integral part of the southern ghost coast life we got to do something and uh what can we don't live uh, good question, Christian. What can folks that don't maybe necessarily live along the Gulf uh, do to help uh, preserve our uh, a healthy Gulf of Mexico? Well, you know, interestingly, one of the um, one of the greatest threats to the Gulf of Mexico is something that I think folks have known about for many, many decades, and it's been studied, and a lot of people have probably heard about it, and that is the dead zone that forms every summer. It can be up to about 7,000 square miles off the Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas coast, offshore of the Mississippi River, and it's an area of low or no oxygen in the water. And you know that any animal life, any marine life, there has to have oxygen. And so the animals that are there that can get out of the way swim away from that, and the ones that can't get out of the way die. And um, this dead zone is related to mainly to agriculture in the American Midwest and especially the growing of corn. We have um, converted so much of our um, uh, the, the, the wonderful areas of, of um, uh, the, the Midwest to, to agriculture to grow corn both for feed for animals. In fact, we grow a lot more corn and a lot more of that for animals than we do for people. Um, and then also ethanol, which has turned out to be a real negative environmentally, um, growing corn to make this this alternative fuel. So there's a lot of work being done to um, try to make those farms work uh, better, but uh, and 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 not be so uh, not have fertilizer run off from those farms. But an immediate thing that someone can do at home is simply to change your diet um, and eating less meat, because that meat, especially. Um, chicken and beef and, and, and pork is coming from that feed, that corn that's being raised in the Midwest that's contributing or really the main cause of that dead zone, along with things like wastewater treatment plants. But that's something that's very tangible in our lives is that we can do that immediately. We're all going to eat another meal here in the next little little while, and you can make a choice about the foods that you eat um, to eat fewer animal products. And that's certainly something that's within the realm of things we can do. I, I would also say that you know for our organization, if you're specifically interested in the whale, in the rice's whale, if you go to our website, healthygolf.org. We, we do have information there on how to participate in. Um, we are writing letters to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Dir uh, Administration Director asking for vessel speed limits in the area where the rice's whale lives. So these strikes from vessels is one of the greatest threats to uh, the rice's whale and many other whales around the world. And they've successfully used these, these speed limits on large ships in these areas in other places to help preserve them. That, that way the whales have a chance to get out of the way of a, of a coming ship. So we are, we are asking NOAA to implement that in this area as the most immediate step that could be taken to help preserve the whale. So anybody can write that letter and it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. Um, and we would love for people to do that. Our guest on Creature Comforts this morning is Christian Wagley from Healthy Gulf, and we're talking about the newly discovered Rice's Whale. Uh, Christian, what is their diet? 
So they eat um, crustaceans and small fish, um, and, and they eat those at, at depth closer to the bottom. So remember, they're living in, in waters um, where the continental shelf drops off. So that's water that's between about 300 and 1,200 feet deep. And they spend most of their time within about 50 feet or so of the surface because, of course, they have to breathe. They can spend, I think it's believed, anywhere between 5 and 15 minutes underwater. But most of the prey they're eating, these small fish and crustaceans, are deeper down, hundreds of feet, um, not far from the bottom. So they have to dive down there and, and then gulp this enormous mouthful of, of water and prey together and then and then squeeze the water out and and keep the the fish and crustaceans so that's kind of what they're eating and they're eating that um by diving down deep and, and getting their prey there uh, i guess a lot of us know that whales are are big creatures uh, give us an idea of, of how big these uh, rice's whales are yeah they can grow to about 42 feet in length and um, weighing uh, up to sixty thousand pounds Wow. And that's huge. And that sounds huge. Uh, now, the blue whale is the largest whale in the world, the largest animal in the world. Right. And they can get to be 100 feet and uh, weigh about 200 tons. So quite a bit larger, but still a, a rice's whale is a, is a very, very large animal. Do we know much about their social life? Yeah, a little bit. And, you know, and, and a lot of the answers I'm giving to these things are, are a lot of this is hard to know because there's so few of the whales left and they live in places where they're hard to observe. But apparently they're they often are in um, in pairs, sometimes in smaller groups, but they're not in, um, in, in, in not they're not in large groups typically found like we would think of like a, a school or something like that. They're typically found in, in, in smaller groups. Um and I'm sorry, what was the, the second part of your question? No, that's fine. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask about, and you mentioned, I think, less than 50. Are there ways that you can track the population, monitor the population? Well, certainly scientists, especially from um, from NOAA and, and the federal agencies, are tracking and they do occasional research cruises out there and spend time out there in the areas of the whales. And so they would do um, acoustic monitoring, right? They would listen for the the, the calls of the of the whales and, 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 and that. So they certainly do that. Some of the whales have been tagged and I don't know the exact data they're getting from that and if that's a temporary tagging or something that's longer term. But with the tagging, that would allow them to uh, see how deep the whales are going, how, how, how long they're staying um, at depth. Um, what their habits are, certainly very important to know that. So I know that's being done in addition to, like I said, the, the listening for them as well. Um, but I don't know that that's a permanent all the time thing. It depends on the, the occasional trips offshore in order to to do that monitoring. We, we certainly would hope and we're going to I'm trying to work with some of the deep water sailors in our area. There are people who sail out in the Gulf of Mexico and actually sail, say, between Pensacola and Tampa, and they go through those areas. Uh, also fishermen, and trying to connect with them more in, in case they actually see any of these whales, and we want to be able to report those sightings. So I'm trying to do some outreach to some of those groups as well. Um, I had a question, and it's uh, – oh, I know, yeah. Uh, so do we know, do they stay primarily in the Gulf, or do they migrate in and out of the Gulf at any time? No, it's believed they stay, they stay entirely in the Gulf of Mexico, and, and it's – Partly, you know, that isolation that would help to make them more genetically distinct. And so it's believed they could range as far south as, as Cuba and, like I said before, um, down to Mexico. There are reports historically um, of them occurring in those areas. But as, as best we know now, they seem to have been 
pushed mostly into this area offshore of Florida, mainly, and that's mainly between Pensacola and then the area west of Tampa, St. Pete, again, where that where the continental shelf drops off into deeper water there. This is Creature Comforts. Time for our last break of the hour. When we get back, we'll wrap things up. We have been talking throughout this hour with our guest, Christian w- Wagley from Healthy Gulf. Still time to call with questions and comments, though. The number is one mpb ring It's one 672 7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap up the program after this. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest for the hour, Christian Wagley from Healthy Gulf. Uh, we've got a caller on the line, so why don't we start things off again by visiting with John in Mobile. Good morning, John. You're on the air with us. Yes, sir. Thank you for taking the call. I hope everybody's had their coffee this morning. <laughs> Can't trust people who don't drink coffee in the morning. <laughs> Listen, relative to this whale and its um, dietary habits, I understand it eats crustaceans. Is that to, uh, is that to say they eat shrimp? And if so, does is there a long-term impact on the shrimp population in the Gulf? That's the question. Shrimp versus whales. So I, I believe that shrimp, those, especially those deep water shrimp, are something that they that they do eat. Um, I'm not I'm not up on the um, you know the, the the recent status of the various shrimp populations in the Gulf. I know there's the um, you know there's the ones that we commonly eat, the brown shrimp and the white shrimp and pink shrimp and the, and what we see in the seafood markets. Um, and I'm not sure that those are the same species that the rhesus whale is eating because they're eating um, shrimp that are much deeper down and much farther offshore. Um, I, I know that clearly the, you know, the oil spill back in 2010 did have an impact on shrimp populations and oil was continued to be found in the, you know, in the bodies of some of those shrimp. So that's certainly, um, an issue. Um, but, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not up on the latest status of the, of the shrimp populations at large, other than the fact that, um, you know, our organization certainly works to support sustainable fisheries and making sure that we don't, um, you know, that we don't over harvest and we certainly support the, um, the fisher folks along the whole Gulf of Mexico coast and continuing to have access to these fishery resources and making sure they're managed for the you know long-term good. All right, John, we appreciate your calling us this morning. Uh, so Christian, we've been talking about Healthy Gulf, the organization that you work for throughout the hour. If you would uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, the work that they do and how they try to uh, meet the goals and uh, that the organization has. Yeah, we have a staff of about 14 and we're based in New Orleans, but we work in all five Gulf states. And of course, I'm here in Florida. We do a variety of work. We do citizen science. We engage people around the science. We actually go out offshore. Some of our folks do and collect data. Um, we do mapping projects to help understand the distribution of the issues and, and threats to the Gulf. And we really engage people, communities directly to find solutions to the, the environmental problems in their community, whether that's a, a polluting factory or industry in some way. Um, it's continuing to try to push us uh, away from, you know, inevitably we're moving away from fossil fuels. And so the oil and gas drilling in the Gulf of Mexico will go away slowly and transitioning to renewable energy. So that's something we work on a lot as well. And certainly when that happens, that's going to open up tremendous new habitat for those whales and allowing them to access 
and reclaim part of their former range, which they're going to have to do in order to expand. The, the whales are not viable with, with you know, only 50 um, individuals. There need to be hundreds and perhaps even thousands of those whales in order to, you know, to bring them back. Um, but another thing, as I mentioned earlier, that we do, you know, thankfully, we, we live in the United States where citizens have the ability to engage more directly on these issues. So the Endangered Species Act allows us as an organization, a nonprofit, to take legal action if needed. And so we joined with the Natural Resources Defense Council in petitioning in court the federal government to set critical habitat for the whale. And that's that's a normal part of the endangered species process and recovering that whale. So we are pushing the federal government to accelerate that. These whales are so critically endangered that we just can't wait um, any longer to to make sure that we're acting on on protecting them. And then, as I mentioned earlier before, most immediately right now, we are writing letters and encouraging others to do that to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, asking for those vessel speed restrictions that is the most immediate, most effective way to help protect the whales. Um, and also pushing for that recovery plan, which in addition to the critical habitat designation, that recovery plan is basically the plan that's laid out for any endangered species. It says, here's what we're going to do to not only protect, but recover this species. So we are pushing for that. And we're doing that by, like I said, engaging with the public, doing things like being here today and talking with caring folks like, like all of you, because we need the public's support to help make this happen. And from your experience, do you find that the public is generally receptive to this? It is just maybe an issue of awareness and that a lot of people are not aware of some of the issues uh, in the Gulf and, and some of the, th the, the problems the creatures face? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we knew about this whale out there. Now we know it's a different species, but the average person, you know, there's 20 million people here in Florida where I live, and these whales are offshore here, and almost no one knew that these whales even existed. So we certainly want to take advantage of that attention now that's been given uh, to the whales and just really try to engage people around that. I think most people, again, because they're these charismatic megafauna, right? These, these big animals that people just feel good about knowing that whales are out there. Um, I think it makes it a little bit easier to, to engage around that. And we're going to continue to do that, to educate people about the whales, to educate them about the, the plight that they face, and to push toward, um, toward action to help to, to protect and preserve them for the, for the long term. So with the Rice's Way, you told us that uh, there was an incident in the uh, Everglades, I think, where the, the one of them was kind of basically beached. Um, do you think if that had not happened, we would still consider them to be the Brutus whale? Yes, I do think that because, you know, science is scientists are, are, are conservative by their nature in terms of they don't report uh, information and report findings until they have very solid evidence. And in the absence of being able to physically examine a skull from one of these animals and other features, um, I, I think correct. I think you're absolutely correct. We would still be wondering what exactly, which species it was, and, and we would not be calling it the rice's whale, and we would not know it was a distinct species. So that was the, again, the silver lining of something when a, when a, um, a whale comes ashore. It's a tragic thing, especially with so few, but it did give the opportunity to provide um, some solid information now that allowed this designation to be made. So you told us about the, the, the letter writing campaign to uh, try to uh, get some regulations uh, set up concerning speed of, of some of the commercial traffic in the Gulf. If someone is interested, would they go to your website to become involved? Yes, they can. It's, it's healthygulf.org. And they'll find information on the rice as well there. And we'd love to have folks engaged. They can sign up for regular just email updates on various issues in the Gulf, including the rice as well and the work to protect it and how they can engage on that. 
And uh, any online resource if someone is in general learn, wants to learn more about uh, the Gulf of Mexico and, and some of the creatures that live in the Gulf? Obviously, in addition to our website, I would say, and especially in the case of the of the rhesus whale, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has some great resources on their website. If you just um, if you just type that into a search engine, um, NOAA Gulf of Mexico, there's a Gulf of Mexico program um, of the EPA, and there's also, like I said, from NOAA, lots of good information on the rhesus whale, reports of research, good just good summaries of what they know about the whale. So that's a great place to get started. All right, as we wrap up, just a reminder, if you are out and about and you ever see a creature that you don't know about and want us to help you identify it, if you snap a picture with your smartphone and send an email to animals at mpbonline.org, we can always help you out there. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding is provided by generous listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Christian Wagley, I'm Kevin Farrell. Up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.